you can get this podcast. I'm going to repeat that for everyone who's just joining. Welcome to Lit, (laughs) my podcast where I talk about things that light me up and things that I'm curious about. And I talk to people uh, who are really bringing light to the world. You can get this podcast anywhere you stream podcasts. And I'm really excited to have my guest today is the fantastic, uh, fabulous, prolific uh, musician, podcaster, DJ Dad Bod. You need to check out his videos, DJ Dad Bod. Um, Ben Lee. His podcast is Weirder Together that he makes with his uh, wonderful wife, Ioni Sky. You should check out um, Weirder Together. Here's Ben. Hi, Ben. I'm here. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? I'm really good. I'm getting I'm getting through my to do list. I'll tell you what. What's it's your? It's a great, just a great feeling. You know when you're just deleting those things from the iCal. Yeah. Like yeah. what kind of stuff are you deleting, Ben? Oh, what have I been doing today? Like very uninteresting housekeeping type stuff. Updating things on websites, lyrics to backing for backing vocals to band members adding extra baggage for flights coming up, all that stuff that's like the really glamorous part of show business. So do you have an assistant or you do all that stuff on your own? I have a manager and they've, you know, they've got people there, but I I honestly feel that a lot of the time it's almost easier to do stuff on your own. Um, Especially if you're a bit like, you know, if you've been doing it a while and you know what you like and stuff. Um, But I, yeah, there's times, you know how it is, delegating, it's like, there's times when the budget allows where I'll delegate a little more, but I'm pretty hands-on with everything I do. Wow, that's impressive. Ben, uh, did you watch the Golden Globes? I didn't. Did you see any moments from the Golden Globes? I saw um, Alexi Wasser posting a guy who was on his phone in the background of everything on the red carpet. (laughs) How do you feel about award shows? Um, I feel about them like I never feel better about things or myself or my peers post award shows. Like there are very, you know, for people that aren't involved in entertainment, I think they don't quite realize that they're really there as marketing, as a marketing device. So they're sort of useful in the sense of getting people to pay attention to projects and stuff. But anytime I've been at awards, even when I've won, there's just such a horrible feeling of sitting in the room in this competitive atmosphere with other creative people. Because we're all thinking the same thing. Like, we're all just thinking, like, if you win something, you're like, wow, I I guess I'm going to get some more opportunities out of this. Like, we're very blue-collar as entertainers. But... I never think of them as a real marker of what work is superior to anything else. Do you? No, that's very, I think that's a very healthy outlook because I think a lot of it is, as you say, PR and also dangerous. It's right. It's dangerous to believe the hype, whether 
good or bad, right? Like you always need your own internal GPS. Yeah, I mean, look, when the phone's ringing, it's great. Like there's no, you know, there's, as an entertainer, there's great opportunities that come with those sort of shifts in momentum where suddenly things tip from cycling uphill in quicksand, which I think is what most projects feel like uh, in show business, to, oh my gosh, there's people interested in this. And oh, you know, there's opportunities coming back. You know, like everything, it's very temporary. And for me, it's more just about emotionally how things like that can cloud your perspective um, when I watch them. So I don't know. Yeah, I've gone through, I'll watch them sometimes. I I really don't care that much. I just, I'm not that, I don't make a point of it. Right. You don't host like a, like a Super Bowl party with the Golden Globes. Uh, It's probably similar. I don't watch sports, which is pretty similar to why I don't find award shows that exciting. Because um, they're quite, it's a similar type of, uh, yeah, watching a competition play out. I wouldn't have been good in the Coliseum in ancient Rome. I don't think I would have been invested enough in the drama of which Christians got thrown to the lions and which ones didn't. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to buy into the narrative competently. <laughs> um, I did see one snippet from it, I saw Jennifer Coolidge accepting an award and presenting an award, and I love her because I oh, feel- Oh, yeah, wait, I did see that too. I did see that, her thanking Mike White, of course. Yeah. And we all love Mike White. I mean, it's like, you know, for anyone who's like been at all involved in like, known the fringes of like indie cinema and comedy, like he's been kicking around and working, doing great stuff for so long. And it is amazing when you see someone like that get recognition on a bigger level. I mean, I remember seeing Chuck and Buck at the cinema and just being like, oh my God, I love this. And it's just been the unfolding of his creativity has been so beautiful to watch. Also, like part of I think what's been so fun about White Lotus for creative people was my understanding is that he really saw the opportunity from a brief that went out from HBO at the beginning of the pandemic that they were like looking for single location shows that they could shoot in lockdown. You know, they basically, everyone they had things in development, they sort of sent a brief out to, and he came up with an idea and killed it and pulled it off. And I just love, I love resourcefulness and people that are like Jedi-like in their like ability to command a moment. Yeah, that's so, that's so, I love him. And then when he was crying, it was so, it was powerful. And I love that. I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to check that. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, Mike White cries on the Golden Globes. But uh, Jennifer Coolidge's speech, speeches are so fun to watch. I mean, I don't watch the whole show, but I'll, I'll Google after like the little highlights. And uh, it was, it's, I love how she stays in character. You know, know, she's like the persona of Jennifer Coolidge is so funny and delightful to watch. And so it's fun to to watch her do something different with award speeches. I also always love Patricia Arquette's speeches. Mm. Mm. Yeah, just uh, on Jennifer Coolidge, I think part of what is so refreshing about her at the moment um, is, like you said, that she has really accepted her place in the mythology of the entertainment world. And I think there's something very humble and noble 
about people that take their role and don't fight it, but like play it with generosity and commitment and without a wink. Cause um, that's sort of like almost old fashioned show business, uh, not needing to be dependent on the public thinking you're five steps ahead or anything, but just really, I don't know. I think playing a role is, you know, Bob Dylan played his role so well. Like I think people, I think entertainers playing their role is for me, one of the great joys that we get to witness as fans. Yeah. And to live vicariously and, um, yeah, it's just, it's pure entertainment really. It's, it's, you know, the archetypes. Uh, yeah, the complete lack of angst. There's like no, there doesn't appear to be any emotional turmoil or resistance. Like I think for most of us, the process of understanding that as entertainers, we occupy a very tiny niche and that, you know, when you're young, you're like, you think you can do everything. And you think you could be good at everything and like, oh, if I was just given a shot, I could do that. Or I could, you know, and then you come to realize if you're lucky, there's one little tiny thing that you can actually do quite competently. And there's something very just humble about accepting that uh, and not, not being conflicted about it, like not needing the audience to think you can do everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know who gave a great speech a little while back was Lizzo because she brought all these women on the stage with her who were doing like these amazing things in the world for equal rights and it was it was really powerful like she shared her stage time with like all these good causes and i was like wow it looked I, that would have been a lot of energy to get that together but it was super powerful i can't remember the award show but anyway wait, isn't it just cool just 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 on that like isn't it just cool when people take big swings in general, yeah. in whatever way, whether it's like Jennifer Coolidge like tripling down on her persona or Lizzo stepping into the role of activist and trying to empower others. Like I just, part of being Australian and sort of growing up in a culture that is a bit like everything's chill, don't try too hard, you got to make it all really casual. I just really love people taking big swings. That's sort of what I fell in love with about American culture. So it still brings me joy. Yeah. So is, is it really that way where you're from, like very chill? There's not like a lot of big swings in general? Yeah, it was, it was more like that, you know, pre-internet. I think post-internet popular culture has become more uniform in approach around the world because basically it's a level playing field in a way it didn't used to be because uh, everyone's, you know, on the same algorithm, basically. But, yeah, it used to be really important in Australian culture to not step out from the pack too much and to not, uh, yeah, just like not, we, we call it the tall poppy syndrome where when a poppy gets too tall, you cut off its head uh, because it's just seen as like, and in a way there's a beautiful aspect to it because it's seen as, how we we have a, a value of mateship and of egalitarianism so everyone's equal and if you act like a big shot it's seen as sort of distasteful but the downside of that is that creative people who are all crazy we kind of need to be a little bit delusional in order to achieve big things and in some ways if you if you're so worried about the ego being 
going out of control, you might never let yourself dream too big. And so I think in some ways, like a lot of the Australians who have worked at, you know, a, a, a bigger level, like say people like Baz Luhrmann or Russell Crowe, um, you know, they're like, they're people that were in conflict with that Australian persona from day one. And it's been a real, like they've, they've fought to have a bigger vision. Where do you stand in the mix? Well, you know, I live in America most of the time, but it's funny because I think I bring a bit of an Australian approach to my experience in the entertainment business in America in that I'm very community-based and I really believe that basically any young Australian musician who's cool that comes to town, I, like, invite them over and have a beer with them and just want to check that they, like, you know, know what's going on. Like, that's what happened to me. Like, Australians were really welcoming because we were seen a bit as outsiders here. So I have that attitude that's very, like, Australian in a way. Um, but then I definitely have the connection to the American, like, dream culture where you, yes, you may fail spectacularly, but you <laughs> want to try and do things that haven't been done before. Uh, that's so cool. Ben, that's why I'm interested in what you're creating right now, this community with your, with your podcast and your network. And I want to know all about it. I have so many questions for you, but first I wanted to ask, how did we meet? Well, I think we just, I think I just started following you after I heard you on Mark Maron. Um, and I liked your, I liked the whole, there was so much about that conversation I enjoyed. I don't remember it now specifically, but I'm always just trying to find like who are the sort of smart, sensitive people in this town and uh, people who haven't become bitter. You know what I mean? I'm just always like, that's sort of, I, I love people. And so I'm always, I'm very much like, I found social media to be a really it's like enhanced my life in that way, in that it's a way to like, you know, I didn't know much about you until that I listened to that. And I was like, oh, I'd like to learn more about what she's up to and followed you on Twitter or Instagram or something. And so, yeah, that's, that's as I remember it. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that 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 happened. Isn't that amazing that podcasts can connect people like that, that way? Yeah, well, podcasts now are a bit like, they're like fanzines or indie records in the nineties or tape trading. Like it, it's sort of like it's decentralized and anyone can do it. And most people are doing it without making a lot of money from it. Obviously everyone has hopes that they're going to be able to monetize it in an interesting way. But, but I think it's still this very, like it's this amazing sort of grassroots digital network of people supporting each other and so yeah we our, our thing is me and Ioni we do a podcast a weekly podcast called Weirder Together and then we also run Weirder Together Podcast Network which is we really modeled it after like an indie label that we grew up on like the way it used to be with Sub Pop or Rough Trade or Merge where if something was on that label you knew that it would have the sensibility of kind of whatever the curation, whoever was doing the curation, and you trusted it. Because I, the way I see it now is there's so much digital content and it's really hard to, most people don't think 
the way you and I do about pop culture, where you're like consuming it and digesting it and analyzing it around the clock. Most people, it's like a smaller part of their life and they want to, um, they want to have trusted voices helping them curate it a little bit. So, so we just look at it in terms of, you know, the podcasts on our network are not for everybody and they're very much like me and my wife, Ioni's sensibility. And it's kind of fun. It's just fun sort of like creating like a tapestry of creators and ideas that sort of flow into each other. How did you come up with this? Like why a podcast? Because you're both so prolific in all these other areas. And um, I love your work in all these other fields. Like why, what led you to podcasting? Uh, I think it was more, I mean, I actually, I had a podcast back in uh, like 2002. It was before there was Apple Podcasts. It was when they had to do it straight from your you know, like straight from your website or something like you, we had, it was like a download. So it's something, and we're, we're fans of podcasts, but the truth of it is that our vision of creativity is the medium doesn't really matter that much. Like we don't really look at the way we want to be involved in making things as only in this medium, only in music, only in podcasts, only in, you know, we look at it as like the principles of making things are exactly the same across any medium. And once you have enough experience in kind of getting things made and knowing that because like 99% of making things is not abandoning the projects, right? It's like, so you've got to put the right team together and you have to know the right timing and the idea has to be strong enough. And then you just got to actually do it. And I feel like a big part of producing anything is like cheerleading for the team and just being like, let's do it guys. Let's keep going. So, so we just saw it as podcasts were a great place where we could at a low entry cost where it wasn't like you're pitching a TV show or a, a movie and you need someone to commit $5 million an episode before something will ever get made. That's so depressing. Like, like this town is built on people sitting on Zoom meetings, pitching day in and day out. And the reality is unless someone gives you a big check, you don't get to make the thing. Well, that runs very counter to punk rock and how I grew up. I grew up in the way like you make what you can make with the resources you've got and you trust that if you make things of good quality, someone will write you a check for something. So it just felt that like podcasts are a space you can do that now um the way you know record labels were or something yeah that is so great and how many podcasts do you have on there now and how weird is weird yeah i mean i think we're just launching the fifth one um so we do our podcast we do um jello biafra from dead kennedy's he does these sort of political kind of rant kind of things he's amazing he like ran for governor of san francisco back in the 80s. I mean, he, he's like, he's just a very interesting, very left-wing, you know, progressive person and great to hear. Um, Brock Enright, who's a, he's an artist who a lot of, some people know about him because he sort of got famous for consensually kidnapping people uh, about 15 years ago. He does like a narrative science fiction thing. Lou Barlow from Sepido and Dinosaur Jr. and his wife Adele do one called Roy Impressions that's really great. Um, there's a new one we're launching called Making Ways, 
we just got Rod, Rob Goodman, who he's actually done a few seasons and he's moving them to our network. And it's about the way musicians and visual artists find a common language. So for instance, like the way I would collaborate with someone designing an album cover or a music video, how do we create language between different types of expression? So in each episode, he'll have a, a musical artist and a visual artist who've collaborated. Um, Unless I'm forgetting anything, they're the ones that are up now. How long? I don't know how weird they are. They're like, they're like, when we say weird, I mean, my favorite type of weird is like cozy weird. It's like, it's weird, but not actually dangerous. Like I like everyone we work with are very like kind, responsible, but a little out there people. And it's just kind of giving them an avenue to be themselves um what how many how many podcasts do you think that you'll end up taking or you don't know yet it's a bit hard to tell it's not really um it seems like with the podcast with launching them they need a lot of support at the beginning um so it's sort of like the first month or two of um being involved depending on how much experience they have like jello didn't even really know what a podcast was until six months ago. Like he, he, he just had everyone telling him, you've got to do one. You've got to do one. And he was like, everyone's telling me to do one. So for him, it was a matter of like down to like what type of microphone to buy and how, you know, there's a steeper learning curve. And then there's people like Rob and the making ways one, which he already is in full production. So it's more like helping him book guests and come up with ideas. So I think as long as, I always find um, I like to have multiple projects going at once because it's actually my inbuilt protection against getting sort of like um, too involved emotionally in one single project. Like it's a bit dangerous. I think if you only have one thing you're doing at a time, you start pinning all of your hopes and dreams on it. And I think that's not the most healthy thing for me. I like to have a good spread of projects that I'm consistently involved in and then just monitoring when it feels like I'm spreading myself too thin and just paying attention to that. So when it's, but with the other part of something like weirder together, where part of what our value is, is in curation. It's also in, you don't want to do too many because you don't want to dilute the power of the things you get behind. So you know, like you and I are talking about doing something and we'll do it when we get the right thing that like, it's, it's all about just like really feeling like you can stand behind each thing and that the stamp means something. So it's like not, not trying to be like elitist about it, but just be like good quality control. about it. Yeah, totally. You don't want to put your name on just anything. And then it's like, people don't trust the brand anymore. Yeah. Do you, um, what was I going to say? Oh, do you want to talk about uh, your idea for my podcast or do you want to keep it? Secret? Yeah. <laughs> you well, want to talk was, about how you came up with that? Well, yeah, it was just, we were talking about doing something and you had all these different ideas <laughs> and I was just sort of like trying to go, oh, I like this element of that. Like, and then I was like, what I'm actually really enjoying is how many ideas you have. <laughs> and so I was thinking like something in the process of pitching a podcast might be really funny and because you're a comedian like it's nice to i don't know it's just, it just felt like there could be something performative where maybe it was a bit like a nathan for you type thing or something where you were pitching a podcast to someone 
I don't know. We never really exactly figured out how it would work, but I did like the sort of verite idea of you pitching absurd ideas to people totally straight and seeing if you could get them on board with it. Uh, that sounds so it's, well, first of all, I have a million ideas every day. Like they're yeah. just, I have to constantly be writing them down because they just keep coming. I don't know if you have the same thing. It sounds like you're always doing things, but like, I just get so many ideas and I have sold a lot of things through pitches and, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't even think I was sending you that many pitches, but to you, it seemed like a lot. Just the fact that you had more than one idea at a time. I think I was like, wow, she's got a lot of ideas. Uh, but uh, no, it's all, look, I think a lot of it is like maintaining the sense of play. And I think that gets beaten out of people over years of successes, failures, you know, trying to make the rent, trying to balance capitalism and creativity and seeing your friends get more successful than you. And then, oh, I'm close on this and then, I'm not, you know, it just like, it wears people down. And I think one of the things that I realized is a little bit of my sort of superpower in the industry is my ability to be connected to my enthusiasm. And I think there's a lot of people like Rick Rubin is someone who I think has essentially built a career on being a fan of music and always coming from a fan's perspective. So I think staying in touch with being a fan is just the way I want to do everything. And just, and from that perspective, you're free to just play. And I don't know, you make interesting ideas and connections and projects. And if it's not one thing, you know, a year later, you're like, Oh my God, I've got the perfect thing. I just think it's fun to keep it loose and flowing. Yeah. I, and I loved the idea to pitch, have a podcast just pitching, but I think my concern was, wait, I really do want to sell ideas yeah. and make them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. do I want to burn them in a way where people perhaps feel conned afterward? Like, wait, you weren't really pitching that yeah. or then I'm putting my ideas out when they're just babies and they need to be still being protected or am I like scripting this whole, I couldn't understand how it worked. Me neither. Also, the other thing is too, like you don't want to be like the girl who cried wolf where you, um, people start thinking you're joking when you're not like, like I imagine when Nathan Fielder or Sasha Baron Cohen pitches something, the people he's pitching to are probably half like, wait, am I the butt of this joke? Or is, you know, it's, it, it anyway, it's, it's not the right idea anyway, but it just, I just also wanted to, um, I think part of the fun of working in a medium that is, does have a low, uh, entry threshold financially, like you can basically make the thing you want to make as long as it's not prohibitive. Like, and then I'm on a private jet to Brunei, you know, but, but on a basic level, you can set up calls. And it, I just think part of the fun is pushing the boundaries of, in a creative sense, just people talking of what the medium could be. Um, and I kind of think in some ways podcasting is like truly like a baby medium. Uh, we think of it as really saturated, but I think there's people who listen to podcasts and there's people who don't. And the people who don't, don't even know how to listen to podcasts. And they don't even believe that there's possibly a podcast that might interest them. They see it as this sort of like thing that people on the coasts do on their iPhones and it's sort of for them. Um, 
so yeah, I just think it's like it's sort of wide open for what it can become. I mean, I, I'm sort of like I'm I'm interested in also the idea of like you know I had an idea for um, Adam Green, who's this musician I love. I was like, what about if you did a thought for the week that was literally almost like a haiku, and we recorded fifty two of them in one day and schedule them to come out on Monday mornings. And it's an abstract, non-linear, absurd kind of thing. And I just think there's almost like that space where the podcast itself is like a fun reminder of something. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, don't know. I, I just think this, it could be anything. Yeah. Well, what um, are your favorite podcasts? What What do you go back to more than once? I mean, I get my news from the podcast, so pretty much every day I scan, uh, you know, Up First and The Daily and just see what's on them. I like there's a there's a sort of lefty kind of anarchist podcast called It Could Happen Here that I like. It's about the rise of fascism in America. I love a good silly podcast. I love Poog, um, Jacqueline Novak and Kate Berland's podcast. I it took me ages to get into it. I tried it like three or four times. I was like, I don't think this is funny. And then one day I dropped in and I just love it. Similarly, I, I mean, I love podcasts with two people just talking shit. Like I love Thought Spiral, the Andy Kindler, Josh Weinstein podcast. I love Freedom. Um, there's an Australian podcast uh, called the Becky and Cam Hotline that I love. Um, yeah, so I don't know, all of those. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's essentially the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need on one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your pod right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your pod on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What do you love about these podcasts? Like, what do you love about Poog? Uh, I think that, that podcast particularly brings up for me, I really like smart women talking to each other. I think as I grew up only with older sisters, I grew up with very smart women having very insightful conversations. And it's almost like when I hear that, it, it takes me back to like a very just comfortable place. I don't know. That's that particularly. Like they really, they have a certain type of like, it's like, I don't know if it's like Jewish, but it's like it's sort of intellectual, self-deprecating, but self-aggrandizing biting humor that I really love. Uh, but they're yeah. all different. I mean, ultimately, it's like it's like rock stars. You know, I think um, all musicians, to be a good rock musician or pop musician, the audience has to either want to sleep with you or be your best friend. That's When you see a front person on a stage, a singer, if you don't want to sleep with them or be their best friend, they've lost you. And I think it's kind of the same for podcast hosts. Like you either have to be at some level, you have to be attracted to them. 
Mm. And that's why it is kind of, it's, it's a platform for charisma, essentially. Yeah. I mean, do you ever listen to any that don't have charisma? Not really. And I don't listen to a lot of the like drier ones where people read. I mean, a lot of people don't like chatty podcasts. I do. Cause I think you get to see more of the intimate side of the hosts. There's those ones that are really smart where like someone brings information and tells someone else about it. Like whether it's, I don't know, like the dollop or maintenance phase or those ones where you have like, there's a conveying of information and research but they don't hit me in exactly the same way. Like I admire them, but they're it's different. That feeling I like is where you're like hanging out with the people. What are the benefits of doing a podcast? Does the world need more podcasts? Is it uh, I think the main thing is uh, I, for a long time, was a big believer in email lists. And I still am essentially, because I think as a, as an artist, as an independent you know, freelancer is sort of what you are. You do to some degree want to connect with your audience off social media. Uh, it's great. I mean, socials are obviously so important and in the moment can drive traffic to ticket sales or new projects or whatever you're doing. But ultimately, when someone falls out of love with an app, they don't go, let me make sure I'm still connect connected to Melinda Hill and Ben Lee before I stop using the app. They just stop using it. Yeah. And so to some degree, your most hardcore audience, you want to find ways of connecting with them off, offline in that way. And mailing lists and podcasts are kind of similar to me. But I think podcasts, I'm almost like, like mailing lists, I'll scan, read them. I don't have them in my ear talking to me on a weekly level. And even if I don't listen to that episode, their name comes up in my feed. I see what it's about. And I just think it's a great way of... Amanda Palmer, I had a great conversation with a few years back where she was really on the trip, like moving everything to Patreon. And she really believed that... Uh, it's not about everyone loving you. It's about a thousand people who really get you and hyper serving that small audience. And I sort of agree. And I kind of think like they're your podcast listeners. So even if you don't have a podcast that you're able to monetize at an advertising level, because you're not at like 5,000 weekly listeners or something like that, that really puts it into where sponsors want to get on board and stuff you still are making weekly contact with the 500 to a thousand people that when you write a book or when you have pre-sales for a show or when you, they are the exact audience that are going to go out and support you because they are like, they're a niche group that have found their connection with someone they really like. So I just think of it as like a really potent way of staying connected with your most hardcore audience. I love that. That's what I missed when I wasn't doing mine was the connection. And just mm -hmm. it, during lockdown, you know, you don't see people as often. So I love that. Um, when does it make money, though? Well, I think there's, I mean, I think there's two things. Well, there's, there's multiple levels, the ways people make money. Advertising and sponsorships is one, but that's really dependent on, um, at this moment, it's kind of dependent on your getting to bigger listeners. But for instance, like, you know, when I have tour dates, 
and I announce them on my podcast, um, that's making me money if those podcast listeners go out and buy them. So it's a funnel for all the things that we're selling. Um, but another one is I kind of, I think we're not totally there yet, but I think that niche target marketing, the way we do on social media, uh, for instance, putting in interests that you want to market a show. Like I might, if I'm playing in New York, I might say, yeah, let me, let me show this up in Facebook feed of people that like bright eyes and Paul Kelly, an Australian songwriter. Um, I think podcasts could actually be a great way of hyper-target marketing for smaller audiences. Like, if you think about, like, Jello Biafra's podcast, if he has, you know, two to 3,000 listeners that are really hardcore, um, there's a lot of artists and products that should be marketing to that two to 3,000 listeners. Um, it just, the infrastructure isn't there exactly to connect the creators and the product with a way to market to those more niche podcasts, but someone's going to create it and it's going to be really powerful. And that's kind of how I see Weirder Together, that I want to be the kind of podcast where if a show is coming out with the sensibility that they know our few thousand influential listeners will dig and will want to share, they'll want to uh, advertise on our podcast. You know, and I think that's like a very real possibility. I think that our brand, if people trust that it's discerning, I think that should be something we're able to monetize for things that meet our criteria of being really good, you know what I mean? So, so I do think there's, there's a lot of levels, but I think it's interesting. I was having a, you know, mini debate uh, with someone on Twitter recently about, because podcasts, a lot of the bottom dropped out of uh, the, it being really easy to make advertising sales for your pods, which I think like five years ago, it was way easier when it was less crowded, but you know, in music, I've lived through Napster and our product going from having a value of $20 per album to having zero. So I've lived through these changes in perceived value. And I kind of think it's not worth spending time worry about, worrying about. I think you sort of go, well, where is the value for the future? And I think niche marketing is something the podcast could be like hyper involved in. Totally. But like, if you, okay, three questions. What are the advantages of being on a network versus not? How do you get sponsors if you are not on a network? And how do you grow your following? Well, there are some people who have done, have individual sales agencies working for their podcast. We're not super driven for sort of like getting the Casper mattress like, you know, like to me, the competition for those corporate sponsorships at that level are like, that is crowded there. I'm so, so, so it's really dependent on what your goals are, you know, but for me, that's why I was saying the rules of creativity apply no matter what medium you're in. 
talking about like how do you grow your podcast is really not that different of how do you grow your work as a stand-up? How do you grow your work as a musician? How do you fundamentally what needs to be existing at the core of something before you worry about how you grow the audience is that you're doing it for a reason other than growing an audience. <laughs> there has to be a profound relationship to the thing that you're doing. You know what I mean? Like for me with music, when I haven't played guitar for a couple of weeks, it's almost like I haven't stretched my body and I'll pick up my guitar and I'll just noodle around on it for 10 minutes. And it's like doing a little yoga. Like I'm like, oh, that's healthy for me. That's really healthy for me. I like it, you know? Yeah. And that is at the core of my relationship to music. So I do think the same like with podcasts, at the core of what me and Ioni are doing is that we like collaborating on things and we like championing things that we love and we like being involved in dialogue about ideas. So that's really what's at the core. And after that can come making money and growing your audience and all of that. But that's my punk rock just value system that the bottom line of it should not be about making money. Um, and it, it, I, I'm really hesitant to like, I never really like form these thoughts into words that much because they can, there's an element of privilege that I speak with as a white male creative person who has, who grew up feeling entitled to share my voice and people listening to it like that. I totally understand. And I'm trying to learn the balance between that, that I have grown up with a sense of uh, confidence that allows me to take my ideas out to the marketplace and feel confident about them. But also with the idea that like, dude, in 30 years of basically making stuff, it's gotten down to the wire many times of like, you know, run out of money. Like for sure. Like I don't people don't realize that. Like you can have like a hit song and still like run out of money. <laughs> like it's, I think people think once, because they don't understand the finances of the entertainment business. Right, right. Once you've experienced any success, like if you've been a, in a writer's room on a sitcom, they think you must be like living in the Palisades in a mansion. So, yep. um, so, so it has, you know, but something always comes up and something works out. And I think that is not to do with like the secret or some kind of like magical thinking about manifestation, but to do with the fact that I like to stay focused on adding value to my community. I like, I don't focus on, oh my God, how am I going to get money out of this industry? I think of it as like, what can I give back to it? Like, who can I help do stuff? What can, who can I make more things with? How can I just have like more horses in the race? You know, I just think of it from that perspective of like adding and creating value. And from there, I think there is a sort of natural flow that like I've gotten the opportunity and sorry if I'm talking too much, I get excited. I've had a lot of coffee and I get excited about yeah. all these ideas. But I think for me, um, I've gotten to do really cool jobs in the past. Like, you know, Barry Sobel was doing this talk show for Playtone for Tom Hanks's production company that like Subaru were uh, sponsoring. And it was like this little internet talk show. 
and he asked me if I wanted to do all the music for it, like a band leader, not because I'd ever done that, but because I'm like kind of like fun to work with and I get it done. There's people that are way better than me, but like I kind of bring a good energy to what I do. And that's kind of what I mean. But like if you add value and just bring good stuff, good vibes, good energy to it, I do think that people want to do stuff with you. And that is at the core of the answer to that question of how do you build an audience? How do you do any of that stuff? I totally agree. And I love that. And it shows with everything you're doing, you know, and I wonder where did you develop that or were you born with that ethos? I think I've always been like a bit of a like good vibes person. Like I've always, since I was a baby, like my mom would say to me, like I'd smile at people when they were, when I was a baby and they'd be like, Oh, what a cute baby. You know, like, I just was like a happy, happy baby, you know? Um, so that's sort of natural, I guess, to who I am. Uh, I also, I guess I also realized when I was like kind of young that I was like a decent leader and every project needs leadership. And that's something that for creative people can be a little hard to step into because we're also insecure and it's hard to say no or tell people, oh, maybe you could try this a different way. And I for sure have led projects in really bad ways that I've learned a lot from. But I basically think once I realized that like, oh, I have a pretty natural disposition to positivity and I'm like a decent leader, I was like, these are sort of, these things go hand in hand. Like everyone needs, if you have a, um, this is the same for like CEOs of companies. Like everyone wants to be on, on a ship that's going somewhere. And not everyone has to be able to see where it's going, but you do need one person. And that person can be wrong. Like my vision for Weirder Together and everything I'm saying about these sort of micro niches and marketing and what the brand could mean. I could be totally wrong about it, but I've got an idea. And I think people like an idea. They like moving with energy, with momentum. So it hasn't been hard to find people to go, hey, let's try. Let's go where you want to go. Let's see if we can get there. Um, yeah. Who are your mentors, Ben? Who did um, you learn from? Yeah, I mean, I've had lots in different ways um when i was younger there was this guy called steve pav who is an australian music promoter who gave me my first gig opening for sonic youth and he really like started my career and what i learned from him was about cultural curation he was a tastemaker he saw things and if he vibed with them he wanted to share them and that took his career very interesting places so he was a really big one um i mean i've had ones in terms of record production for sure like you know brad wood ed buller people i've worked with the last few years tom robbins who i did i wrote this musical with that we were not able to get up because it's a bit too bizarre it's about a seven-year-old girl who steals her dad's beer and goes on a journey through time and space uh it, so, but he has been a mentor to me in the sense of helping me create a vision of how to age as a creative person, because I'm in my forties and there aren't a lot of blueprints. Like there are some, there's like people like you're watching like Wayne Coyne and Nick Cave and Patti Smith and, you know, people that are sort of like 
how do we do this? Like, what does it look like? Like staying vibrant, Tom Waits, you know, staying kind of in an interesting space. But Tom's older than that, you know, Tom's like, you know, I think he's almost 90. And to me, how do you get like old? Yeah, how, how do you? What have you learned? How do you stay vibrant? Well, it's all connected to this whole thing, which is that the reason I ended up writing a musical with Tom Robbins, who's an American literary legend, is that I wrote him an email when he was in his late 70s and said, do you want to make a thing with me? And he said, yes. That's and so great. That, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? We're just saying, like, never stop with the attitude of play and curiosity about where it can take you and don't write anything off as if oh i'm too old for that oh that's never gonna work you know a guy in his 30s came up to him and said do you want to try something and he was like yeah i do <laughs> and i just that's what i'm going to take into my you know 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s i love that first of all how did you get his email second of all what is your creative process since you do so many things? Like, do you have a like, oh, I do 10 minutes on this. I do have a system or do you just do, is it more organic? Yeah. I mean, okay. So Tom, I just, you know, it was through his agent to reach out. I reached out, but, um, but, uh, how do I, I, I don't, it's not really like that. Like mostly there are tasks that need to be done. And I'm a firm believer that, with creativity, the next, all you need to know is the next step, right? So for instance, there's a podcast I'm developing with um, this great music journalist, Jenny Ellisku. And I just saw a text just came through while we were on this chat. She said, I've done a draft of the blurb, have a look at it and see what you think. And that's my only task with that project. You only have to know what's one step ahead. And it's like that with everything, with making albums, with with dating, yeah. I remember when with I was dating, dating yeah. people said, oh, just go, can you go on one more date? Just think about that. Yeah. So that's the process ultimately. And also, but I do think because both me and my wife, we love working and we don't view it as, particularly because so much of it happens in our house, we don't view it as, it's not like the partner who like abandons the family for work and he's like, I think like we're working together, talking, like round the clock in our house. So that's part of it too, that there's a lot of work happening, but it's also just our life and it's fun. I love that. And I, I'm very inspired by your marriage. And I wonder, do you have any, like, like what is the key to a successful marriage that is also a creative collaboration? I mean, I wish I knew. Like people ask all the time, that sort of thing. And it's very... Uh, it, it, the bottom line is I don't know because relationships are so mysterious, but I will say this. Our first date was a documentary about John and Yoko. So baked into our process of getting together and getting to know each other was this vision of two artists living together and making things. And like anything else, if you spend enough time and hold a vision and work towards it, you know, it took us, for sure, the first decade, there was like lots of experimenting, but 
it was really only like, I think after 10 years together that we started like really getting in a flow of working together. What do you attribute it to at that point? I'm just not, not giving up and being open to ideas and you just keep trying basically, you know, we just found a really good, yeah, good space. What do you think about couples like, like Amber and Johnny, like, what could have helped them if you could give them any advice? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. I didn't know them, and I'm not sure that their issue was about being two creative people. Maybe it was. Um, but should they have know. started? Should they have started a podcast? Yeah, exactly. Would that have kept no, them look, together? I mean, at the end of the day, I think most relationships don't seem to work out, right? I mean, that's the gist of it. Um, I do think a big part of it is being willing to change with someone. Uh, I think that's a really big deal. And yeah. I don't know their specifics, but I know that a lot of marriages fall apart or long-term relationships because people don't look at it as a journey that's going to have many chapters, that are going to have different themes and different energies and different approaches. Uh, yeah. What is your advice for Harry and Meghan? If you can. Oh my god! <laughs> I've been I think quite impressed with Harry and Meghan in that you know, as an Australian, this is the thing. I speak from a different perspective about the monarchy than most of my friends in America, because I personally feel oppressed by it. You know, Australia is still a member of the Commonwealth, so we still have the Queen on our money, and there's still a you know, there's been a movement towards becoming a republic but it failed once in a referendum and it's going to take it's going to take time before australia is ready it's like we've got other issues we're dealing with right now in australia which is one of the big ones is uh creating a institutionalizing an indigenous voice in parliament uh, and that's effect affects the constitution and needs a referendum and stuff. But, but anyway, so I would love to see the end of the royal family as far as the Australian Australia's involvement. I think they're a crime family. Um, and I, I think anyone with a conscience that's involved needs to disavow themselves of it as quickly as possible. It's, I think we know enough now uh, to know that this is something that's basically has basically wreaked death and destruction upon the world and uh, is not a good thing for the world. I don't believe in it. So I think anyone, it's bumpy, I think, getting out of a cult. And I think Meghan and Harry, like, you know, it's not always been graceful or perfect, like their escape, but they've been doing it and I have admiration for that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the series? Yeah. It's, in, it's intense. And that's, yeah. and that's, I feel, only what they can talk about. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, I thought it was pretty interesting. And look, there's always the criticism of it because this counters what I was saying in the beginning. Like, I love when people accept their role and they just play it with no shame and no, you know, and just with enthusiasm. But I think it's a little different when you come to things like, you know, the monarchy where... I don't think people should continue to play roles if they hurt society. And I really do think, uh, yeah, I think that family has hurt society. 
How do you think they've hurt society? And I want to ask about the cult that you've been in because I read that you were in a cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, look, I mean, it's the, the British Empire, which, you know, the dog goes into all of this of how the brand the brand change with um, changing into the Commonwealth, which is the era that I grew up in. But it's still, it's an empire. It's an empire that these people have no real connection to like the royal family kind of swans in and gets presented with a show by the native people and they get a few souvenirs that they you know get given or traditionally stole but it's not it's just not an ethical structure for the way for a society to work i personally think like kings and queens and stuff that gets passed down through blood I think we're smart enough as a species that we should be electing all forms of leadership. I don't think we should have any forms of leadership that uh, you get born into. Um, so that's that's the biggest part of it. It's and you know it's intimately connected to. It's interesting watching Americans get so taken with uh, Christian nationalism the last few years which has always been part of a certain vision of America, but basically the idea that like God will choose the leaders of a country. Um, I think that's very dangerous. And I think that's basically what the Royal family, that's the, that's the illusion and the spell that the Royal family have cast upon the public and the members of the Commonwealth is that they are special because basically they've been divinely tapped and there's something perfect through their bloodline. And it's just, it's all hype. So I just don't think it's a good, I basically think when I'm raising kids to be part, be solution-based and think about what type of world they want to live in and where they want to go, that's not a model that I can endorse for a vision of the future. And we do have to be a little utopian. You know what I mean? It does, we do have to say like, what type of world do we really want to live in? Like, how? What type of leaders do we want? Uh, and I just can't buy into that whole that whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Um, what was your cult that you were in? Yeah, well, I explored a, a few cults. Okay. Um, I, I think my my cults. Uh, trying to describe an overarching approach. I've always been kind of a good student. And I like going in all the way with anything when I'm learning about it. So me too, me it's too. that make me quite susceptible to cults. But in other ways, it also made me like not a good cult devotee because because I'm a bit extreme, I'm equally liable to throw something away once I've explored it. <laughs> but um but I got pretty involved in a Qigong group, which is like a Taoist Chinese martial art kind of thing for a few years. And that then took me into a relationship with an Indian Hindu guru who is considered an avatar, an incarnation of the divine mother in a man's body. What's that, that uh, what's that person's name? That that person's called Narayani Arma. And that 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 guru actually married me and my wife. Like we had our wedding there in 2008. And then from there, I got involved in a ayahuasca, a Peruvian ayahuasca cult that was basically like the mysticism was almost more like Gnostic Christian or like um, sort of a cult, like 
like Rosicrucian whole deal. Anyway, so like, but all of these things were like really interesting and really uh, fascinating chapters in my life. But I think they all hinged on a belief that someone would be able to tell me a way to do things that would make me happier than any solution I could come up with on my own. <laughs> and I basically think I realized at a certain point, it ain't gonna happen. Okay, how did you find, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. now, how did you find the cults and how did you um, get out? Um, well, I mean, I hunted them down, you know what I mean? I was not at all a, um, you know, you hear these stories of people coming up to people on the streets and and like brainwashing them or like Scientology outside, they say, come on in and take a test. I was never involved in or interested in any of that. I heard about things that sounded weird and fascinating and I hunted them down. Uh, so but yeah, like, very much on me. But like why these cults, like out of all the cults, like were there a bunch yeah. of shiny cults that were like calling to you? Why? Yeah, well, I think I liked, I'm very, I, I think I was, I like a good aesthetic, you know, I could never, that's why I could never get into Nexium or something like that. Cause it just looks like really corporate and bland. Like I like colors. <laughs> I like music. I like psychedelics. I like, you know, I, I like mystery. I like energy. Um, so yeah, look, there's a whole world of people that sell each other solutions and mystical solutions to the problems of the world. Um, so once you dip your toe in, you start hearing about all this, all this kind of stuff. But it'll be like, you know, you'd hear whispers because essentially everyone's looking for enlightenment. Right. So it's like if you get here heavily into fitness or wellness, you get you start hearing someone goes, oh, my God, yeah, but have you, are you taking this supplement? It's totally changed my life. It's like... I'd never slept a proper night's sleep until I take this supper. You know, and suddenly everybody's like, it's the same thing with spiritual stuff, right? Which is why it's also so vulnerable to exploitation and making money and stuff because everyone's looking for the next better solution to the problem of existence. Yeah. And so like when you joined the ayahuasca, first of all, did you have to buy like a bunch of costumes? Were there like, no, was there like a no, vernacular? No, no, no. Were there fees? And then like, none what the happened? Fees, none of the ones I got into was so into like money. Like they, they there's a, it's interesting because there's a whole world of cults. I don't know, maybe they're all like this. I'm thinking of like how Scientology like gouges even like the poor people who come in. You know what I mean? Um, Whereas the cults I was involved in, they normally have a few rich donors near the top that were in that type of thing. But I was more in the like normal people who would like work and volunteer and set things up and more that type of energy, like um, sweat equity. <laughs> right. Okay. So like, and you never did Scientology? No. Nah. Okay. And so did you find why not Scientology is now a chance to explore that. About it. Yeah, no, no. Um, I think that, 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 that ship has sailed for me of cults. Um, uh, honestly, I, I think there's a couple reasons. I think with things like Scientology, had I been around when L. Ron Hubbard was around, 
that would have been maybe more attractive. But I like direct experience. I'm if I wanted to be in a religion where you study books by someone who's not around anymore, I'd just stay involved in Judaism. It's like we've got it. That's all. That's orthodoxy. You know. That's like we've got a lot of that. The fun of these cults are the ones that are involved in practical present tense revelation where it's happening in real time, whether there's a guru or people are channeling things or it's happening there and then. And to me, that was more connected to like my mystical aspirations. Did you experience some enlightenment or what were the big takeaways? Did you experience benefits? And then did Ione join as well? Or were you just married? By the... I only was very, I only would dip her toes in. She was very, um, she was, she was, but she was always like more like a grain of salt. To it. Um, I would say that all of these systems were able to generate certain types of experiences in the participants, ecstatic experiences. So those are real and those have informed even the way I think about music and the way I think about throwing a party and DJing and like, how do you actually cultivate ecstatic experience? It's like the way I want to do the podcast network. It's I want it to be like really fun. And all of that is understanding group dynamics and how to make things happen and set atmospheres in groups. Um, but I also learned how you can't trust that fundamentally as true just because it feels good so group dynamics are the most seductive dynamics to be involved in and they can also draw you into other types of behaviors that you wouldn't necessarily do because you're like going with the group mob mentality like you know what, what like what uh, just like you know there's irony coming in the back yeah um hang on Hi, Ioni. He's been gone. Hi. He's been, he, he, because he was working on the door and I was in the bedroom with uh, the dog and he's been gone now for like the hour and a half. Oh, the dog ran away. Okay. So I'll go, I'll go. Right. Voice my yeah, we're just wrapping up. Where okay. Yes. Um, but, um, a dog, like he's an escape artist, but he sticks very close to the house. And just goes okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, just even like, what's a good example? Like, Say there's sort of like all these types of mystical theories, right? Yeah. And then you get it, like, say, you Kundalini Yoga has this, right? And then you go and then you read and you're like, oh, that, that shit's a little bit homophobic when you dig in, uh, dig into some of the texts, right? But then you make allowances for it because you are having an experience on another level and you go, okay, I must not quite understand it. Um, and I think a lot of that side of, side of things where people morally compromise uh, in ways that are just not like totally who they are because they're being fed at a more charismatic level. You know what I mean? They're getting like a hit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How do you feel now being free of the cult? Um, do you ever miss, like, do you ever feel like, ah, maybe it's time to try a new cult? Or are you just like no, more wary now? No, no, because no, it was a real like thing that snapped for me where I just realized like, oh, I can do this. And it's interesting for me that like my career 
really started like heating up again a bit when I like left all this behind me because I think I was not trusting my intuition, you know? And when I left all these cults, I was just like, it's just me. It's just my hunches about things. So I'm going to follow that. And it's kind of cool that that the message I got from that was that like my intuition is good and solid and I should follow that. So I don't really miss it. Um, I mean, sometimes I miss my innocence, but I also can see it as naivety now. So, you know, but I feel like quite, it's made me kind of like intelligent, like in some ways, like having been through certain experiences that not everyone's been through, I can, I really understand them. Like not just someone who's read a book. Like I, I learned the lessons like profoundly and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's, I mean, you've had like a very full life of experiences that have shaped who you are and your network. My last question. And the one thing I'll say is, and the one thing I'll say is, everything is all about whatever you go through, it's okay, but you got to land the plane. You know what I mean? Like you can go out there and in a way artists have to go out there, but you got to bring it back. You got to bring it back and you got to reconnect and share with your audience what you've learned. And that's what being an artist is about. Yeah. And that thing that you share with the audience is your gift. You know, yeah. like your experiences and what you took away from it and your transformation. That's the gift, you know, that the people are watching you for. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, what do you think of the Britney Spears situation? I haven't been following it closely lately, but um, I do think that this issue of women, women's mental health issues and the whole conservatorship and how, how that is just, we stomach it so much more easily than for men. I find that really, that being highlighted is a really good thing. Um, but I... Oh, good. He came back. But I don't know enough about the particulars of it. I mean, it's, she's very entertaining. Right? Um, yeah. Do you follow I, the Instagram? I see it. Everyone shares it. I feel slightly complicated about following it, I think, because it's like, it is like there's a bit of a car crash thing going on that I... I have trouble getting behind sometimes, but I am interested in what's happening with her. But it's like, what is happening? Do you have any theories? Like there's all these conspiracy theories. I don't know. Do you know what's happening? Do you have any ideas? I don't know. I mean, she seems like a very eccentric human being. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish she would start a podcast so we would yeah, know. There you go. There we, we would go. know like what she's, you know. Exactly. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming by today. What is next for Weirder Together? What should people um, know about you? And uh, You know, just check out our podcast, the Weirder Together podcast, and that'll flow you through to some other ones. Um, I've got two shows coming up. I'm playing on Tuesday night in LA at the Moroccan Lounge. And Where is night, that? It's, uh, it's downtown. Cool. And Thursday night uh, in New York at Berlin under A, and they're both this sort of festival show that I built for Australia with like props and crazy crap that I do in these little clubs. So it's going to be really fun. And um, I don't know, there's always stuff. I'm going to make another record in February. Um, but, you know, if people are interested in what I have to say, just follow me and we'll just keep it unfolding. 
I love that. Oh, I forgot to ask you, what lights you up? What's been lighting you up since this is called uh, Lit? Yeah, well, honestly, one of the things I've loved the most the last few weeks has been Paul T. Goldman. Um, have you watched that? No. you got to watch it. Okay. It's, um, the guy who created it, he comes from the sort of Nathan Fields of Borat world. I don't know if he was a writer or director or something. But it's a six-part series on Peacock, and it's a mixture of true crime and sort of something like the rehearsal that's a more like performance art meta type thing. It's wild. Okay. And it's really fun. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the tip. I'm going to get yeah. on that now that yeah. Harry and Megan is over. Exactly. Thank you, Ben. Bye, nice to chat to you. See you, Melinda. See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks everyone for coming. You can also, if you missed any part of this, you can, um, listen on all the platforms. It's my podcast called Lit with Melinda Hill. And I really appreciate you guys stopping by today. And sorry, I couldn't read the comments. I was really just trying to pay attention to Ben because sometimes when I get into all the looking at all the comments, then I'm not paying attention to the guests. But I so appreciate your support and happy Wednesday. Subscribe and all the things. Okay. Love you. Bye.